If you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 6. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Annie mentioned a little while ago, uh, that starts on page 811. And we're just going to spend a few minutes in these first few verses of, of Matthew chapter 6 today. Uh, we've been with, uh, if you've been with us, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel uh, these last couple months, specifically the last few weeks in this section of Matthew 5-7 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And that's coincided for us with this month of prayer and awareness for mercy and justice issues uh, in our region. I just want to say a couple words about the connection and the overlap of those two things. Uh, because on the surface, and maybe you're experiencing this, it might not seem like there's a whole lot of, of connection between mercy and justice issues in the world and what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? When we talk about these mercy and justice issues, things like human trafficking, hunger, homelessness, poverty, all of those things tend to focus more on the external outworking of our faith. So we're called to be God's people in the world. We're called to live out of a response of what He's done for us, pursue mercy, pursue His justice in the world. And that's going to mean that we're going to be called and invited to commit time and energy to different causes and issues that, that exist in our own day. But on the other hand, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is focusing not so much on the external outworking of our faith, but on the internal working of our faith, the matters of the heart. And he takes these problems, as we've seen, these problems that we think often exist out there in the world, and he relocates them to in here. The problems exist not just in the world at large, but in our own, in our own heart. So by delving into these two things simultaneously, I, I have a couple specific pastoral hopes for us as a church to, to, to wrestle with these things together at the same time. One of them is this. That first, I hope that you and I see that we are not different or distant from anybody that we would seek to serve in a ministry of mercy or justice. And a lot of the time, I think if we're honest, you and I are more comfortable serving others from a place of power, uh, from a place of strength, from a place where, whether we think about it in these terms or not, where we kind of become the savior and the rescuer of people and they become the saved and the rescued. But if the Sermon on the Mount, and, and the words Jesus shares in these, in these few chapters, if they don't expose our own deep need for his mercy in our own lives, and if they don't expose our own deep need for, uh, of our own deep dependence on him, then I don't know that there's another passage in Scripture that's going to do that. I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of the places that does that most effectively in all, of, in all of Scripture. We're not different, we're not distant from anyone that we serve in our efforts of mercy and justice. Now, even more convicting than that, we're not nearly as different or distant as we like to think we are from those who perpetrate evil and injustice in the world. Right, when, when our sin gets exposed at this heart level, it's meant to show us that left to ourselves, right, apart from the intervening, interrupting mercy of God into our lives, apart from that, we're far more like the terrorists of the world. We're far more like the oppressors of the world than we ever are like, like Jesus. And I think seeing that is really critical to any kind of distinctively Christian presence or pursuit of mercy and justice in the world. Because really seeing that is going to be the difference between truly being an instrument of the mercy of Jesus that we ourselves have received and are so dependent upon, and on the other hand, being just instruments of our own self-righteous plan to save the world and to rescue people who are less than we are. So that's one really big hope. My second related hope is this, um, that we'll begin to see 
and many of us, I think, already do and have, that much of the good that we seek to do in the world is corrupted by this convoluted mixture of motives. It's a convoluted mixture of motives. The good that we do, the good we seek to do, some of it is genuinely good, has good motives underneath it, and some of it has very uh, self-righteous and self-centered motivations. Right? We do the right things for the wrong reasons, and we do that all the time. So I, by, by personality and by practice, I'm a fairly compliant person, and I really have been, I think, for, for most of my life. Um, in many instances, I know what I'm supposed to do. And in many of those instances that I know what I'm supposed to do, I do what I'm supposed to do. But there's this deadly danger to compliance that sometimes goes unnoticed. Right, because it looks good on the outside, deep sin patterns can stay concealed deep underneath that. And, and that means that those sin patterns are rarely, if ever, dealt with. Right? Not by the compliant person himself or herself, and not by anybody else that's involved in his or her life. So think of how rare it is for someone to lovingly confront another person in one of the deep sin patterns of, of their life. And that doesn't happen a whole lot, particularly when it's loving and confrontational kind of all together. And when it does, whenever that might happen, it often happens in relation to these external, you know, wear it on your sleeve kinds of sin. Like whoever calls you out for the motives of the good things that you do. Whoever challenges the good things that you do and asks about the motives underneath that. Who, what nonprofit organization calls up the major donor and says, why are you giving me so much money? That doesn't happen in our world. Like, is there some kind of guilt motivation underneath that? Are you trying to compensate for something? In your No one does that. No one challenges the good motives, or the, the good works people do, and, and challenges the motives underneath them. And so often, because we've got this convoluted mixture of motives in our heart, often those sin patterns become habitual, and they become second nature, because as long as everything looks good and compliant on the outside, we're just content to let it alone. Enter Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount... He is not content to let it alone. Which is one of the reasons why he's hated so much by the Jewish leaders. It's one of the reasons why he's ultimately, why they conspire against him to put him to death. He drills down deeper into these thoughts and attitudes and motivations of the heart. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount especially, he does that all the time, but especially in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're picking this up in Matthew chapter 6. Up to this point, Jesus has been talking about what's going on at the heart level underneath things that are overtly sinful. Our anger, our lust, uh, retaliation, what's going on at the heart level under that? In 6, there's a little bit of a shift, chapter 6, and he starts talking about what's the motive behind the good things that we do? Giving to the poor, praying, fasting. So he's focusing here on the motive underneath our mercy. So follow along with me as I read just those first four verses uh, of Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Jesus, your words convict at a level that we're uncomfortable with. 
We'd rather just be compliant and do good things on the surface and be left alone. Uh, But we pray that you would work by your word and by your spirit in our heart this morning. Show us the convoluted mixture of our motives for our mercy, for our good deeds. Lead us into repentance and in your kindness meet us in our repentance. Restore us in that. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we could spend a lot of time in these verses, just really two things that, we're, that we just want to look at briefly this morning as we think about the motive of our merciful actions and our merciful pursuits in the world. One of them has to do with a question of renown, and the other has to do with a question of reward. A question of renown, a question of reward. So first, a question of renown. In Scripture, and maybe you even have noticed this as we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, there are these uh, apparent contradictions And I say apparent because I want to invite you, uh, as someone who has access to the Word of God, that when you see something that you go, I don't know how these two pieces fit together. I want you to see, I want you to not be afraid of that, or like you've got to kind of keep your distance from that, because that might kind of create some doubt or cause some some things you're you're not comfortable with in your life. I want to invite you just to go right into those things that seem like contradictions, and to really try to see what exists under the surface in those things. And there's a good example of that right here at the beginning of chapter 6. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Instead, uh, do your good deeds in secret. But the chapter just before this, which we read a couple weeks ago, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And all of a sudden we've got this apparent contradiction. Do we let others see our good works, or do we do our good deeds anonymously and secretly? I think the answer is that it depends. On what? On your motives. On your motives. See, the the, the apparent contradiction here, here's one of the things that's beautiful about it. It prevents us from making some kind of simplistic blanket rule about exactly the way that we're supposed to respond in every single situation. And in these two different verses, Jesus is addressing different heart-level motives. Matthew 5, verse 16, he's speaking to the tendency that we have at times to hide out in fear, to be isolated, to not be present in the world when we need to be present in the world. And in that tendency, Jesus says, to that tendency, he says, don't hide, you're the light of the world, and the light needs to be visible, the light needs to shine. So let others see your good deeds. But in Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking about something else, some other kind of tendency. He's speaking about this tendency we have to be ostentatious, which is a big fancy word that means we want to impress people. We want to attract attention to ourselves. And if we were looking at this whole chapter, if we were continuing to look through Matthew chapter 6, we'd see that in many of the otherwise good pursuits that we undertake, we often are tempted to draw attention and praise to ourselves. Giving to the poor is one of those things. Prayer is another Jesus talks about. Fasting is another one. And all of those things are are worthwhile and good pursuits. But all of them are pursuits that we can easily undertake with this motive that other people take notice of me and how good I am. And in contrast here in Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't let other people see. And actually, even a step beyond that, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which is weird to think about. How do you even possibly pull that off? I don't know. But it's a memorable and helpful way of thinking about not even, you know, we have this tendency to kind of keep tabs, keep a record in our own mind. Here's all the good stuff I've done. And he's saying, don't even even worry about keeping a record or keeping tabs of the good deeds that you've done. 
So, there, so what on the surface then looks like this apparent contradiction is really an invitation to consider why we do the good things we do. And for the rest of our lives, that tension is going to exist. It's never going to leave us alone. And maybe that, I think ultimately that's good. I think we're going to hate it at times, that that tension will never leave us alone. It's going to always challenge the motive for the good deeds that we do. And there's a scholar named A.B. Bruce who puts it this way, and I love it. He says, we're, we're, we're to show when we're tempted to hide, and we're to hide when we're tempted to show. So think about that. There will always be a rub and a grating in your life, because whatever you want to do, you're probably called to do the opposite in that moment. Underneath all of this, here's the critical question that emerges. It's a question of renown. What's really going to test our motives, and whether or not we should let others see our good deeds or conceal them, is this. Who gets the honor from this good deed? Who gets the praise? Who gets the commendation from other people for this good deed? All right, look at, look at verse 2 again for just a moment, Matthew 6. That word that's there, um, where it says that the, that the hypocrites do this so that they may be praised. That word may be praised in the original language also shows up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that other verse that's the apparent contradiction. In Matthew 5, 16, it's translated, give glory. So Jesus commands us to let people see our good deeds so that in seeing them, others will, will give glory to God. But then he prevents us, he, he forbids us from making a big show of our good deeds so that others give glory or give praise to us. So the question is, is whose renown are we about? Right, that's the question we have to ask. Who do we want people to focus their attention on as we pursue these merciful things in the world? And it's a question that each of us really has to ask ourselves because only each of us knows what's going on deep within our heart, deep within our soul, as we do good. In the case of the religious leaders or the, the hypocrites, as Jesus so bluntly refers to them here, the fanfare of trumpets in the streets every time you give alms to the poor, that's a pretty extreme example. Oftentimes, it's a lot more subtle than that. Often, our, our motives don't even get exposed until we don't get the recognition that we wanted from other people. Right? We go unnoticed. We do a good deed, we go unnoticed, and then our sadness in being unnoticed, our frustration or anger in being unnoticed, all of a sudden reveals we were doing it to get noticed. A lot of examples I think I could pull from my own life here. An everyday example is this. Um, I hold the door open for people in public places, restaurants and coffee shops, things like that. It's a habit. I, I started doing it when I, was, when I was young, still do it today. I think it's a kind and courteous gesture. But uh, sometimes I will hold the door open for people and like out of nowhere, this thought pops into my mind. I hope people see the, the kind of service that I'm providing them in this moment. Sometimes even more, uh, maybe someone who visited Liberty Church last Sunday is here in this, uh, in this restaurant. Maybe they'll see what a servant-hearted person I am as I hold the door open for other people. Okay, now as I speak those words out loud, it's ridiculous, right? It sounds ridiculous, but that is what happens at the deep level of my heart in those moments, and that reveals to me when I speak it out loud that I'm actually looking for the, the renown, the credit, the commendation from other people in that moment. So I've decided from now on, I will let the door slam in your face. <laughs> and I will do it to the glory of God. <laughs> All right? That's not the point either, right? Jesus, Jesus says here, Jesus says here, when you give, when you give, it's not if you give, 
the, the assumption is that we're pursuing doing these good things in the world, that we're being merciful in the world. It's only that as we do those good things, we do them not so that people would look at us and give us credit, but so that they would give credit and glory to God. They would see the active work of God in our lives, through our lives, in the world. Motive is a question of renown. Second, it's a question of reward. And perhaps you heard this as we read those verses. There's a lot of talk about reward in these verses. You will have no reward. They have received their reward. Your Father will reward you. You and I are a reward-minded people. Right? We want to know all the time, what's in this for me? And we're very capable, and we're very willing to take on heroic efforts if we can see the benefit, and if we deem the benefit worth the work, or worth the sacrifice that it's going to require. And because of that, rewards are also an incredibly tricky thing. Because they are very, very effective tools of behavior modification. A lot of us in the room have pets. How do you train a pet? You train a pet with rewards, right? With treats. And you can teach them all kinds of behaviors by showing them they they can earn rewards for doing the right thing, for going to the potty outside and not inside, and for shaking hands and sitting down and laying down and rolling over. And any of you who are parents know that something very similar works well with kids to a certain extent. You know, if you eat your dinner, dessert is your reward. If you make your bed... This movie or TV show, that's your reward. If you get these kinds of grades, money or whatever other kind of incentive, that's your reward. And my point here is not that rewards or incentives are bad or wrong. My point is that it's possible to create a system of rewards and incentives that effectively train a person's behavior, but also completely ignore and never consider what's going on below the surface at the heart level. And while that might be fine for pets, for people, the trajectory of that is an incredibly well-trained, compliant human being, exactly the kind of human being Jesus calls hypocrite in the Sermon on the Mount. The Jewish leaders, Pharisees, scribes, they are masters of compliance and behavior modification. They're disciplined, they're well-trained. And they do everything right on the outside. And then they perpetuate that system. They train other people to do exactly the way that they do. So this approach toward charitable giving, sounding a trumpet so that everyone in earshot knows when you're giving money away, it's a really effective reward. It's a really effective system of rewards. It it appeals to this inherent desire in each of us to be noticed for the good things that we do. And Jesus doesn't deny its effectiveness either. People who do good deeds this way, they get a reward. It's just a question of, what's the reward? And when do you get it, and who does it come from? In their case, it's an immediate reward of human praise, and it comes from their peers. Unless we think this is like some outdated practice that we have no way to relate to in our modern day and culture, this system of rewards is very much alive and well today. We do good deeds because it looks good among our peers. We get a lot of likes and comments on social media when we post pictures of ourselves doing something nice for someone else or going on a trip somewhere to serve someone. We, uh, it looks good on college applications and employment applications that you've served somewhere. It looks good to your boss when you volunteer for the nonprofit that your company is associated with. 
Right? We put names on buildings, and we put names on plaques, and we give out Philanthropist of the Year awards. And again, none of that in and of itself is wrong. But if the aim of our good deeds is to be recognized by others, Jesus is saying, you will get your reward. You will get that. You will get the recognition. But Jesus says here, that's incredibly short-sighted. There's a far better reward for you. And it's not immediate, and it's not from your peers, it's from your Father in heaven. So you might very well forego immediate gratification, the approval of other people, but in exchange, you get the reward of your Father in heaven, the one who created you, the one who knows you, and the totality of who you are. As I was reading that these past several weeks preparing for this morning, there's a, there's a really important question, I think, that comes up that's worth talking about for just a moment. How is what Jesus says here any different? How is that any different? Like, isn't aiming for a reward from God just a slight variation on the same thing that the Jewish leaders do when they aim for a reward from their peers? Isn't that just a slightly different system of behavior modification? I think it can become that. And I think, sadly, it often does become that in in well-meaning Christian circles. Be a good and moral person, do good things, not to earn the approval of other people, but instead to earn the approval of God. The whole point, though, of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is meant to challenge and to upend approaches that are focused merely on behavior modification and external compliance. A distinctively Christian approach to, to acts of mercy and to charity come when we recognize that the gospel... Right, the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done, that completely alters the way that we understand our reward from God. It sounds the same, maybe. It's actually completely different. For one, the gospel teaches us to see that God himself is our reward. God himself is our reward. So the whole point of this life, the whole point of the death and resurrection of Jesus, is that we get God. It's not so that we change the way we act, we earn something from God, and God rewards us with something else. It's that we're reconciled and that we're restored to Him. And Jesus speaks a little bit later on in this chapter about treasures in heaven. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it speaks about crowns that that, that believers are given, that they get to wear in the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you relate to this, perhaps you can. I used to understand that in a completely different way. I used to have the picture in my mind of Scrooge McDuck in DuckTales, okay? And he has this big vault of coins and treasure that he, like, swims around in. Anybody see DuckTales? You're leaving me hanging up here if not. Um, and I used to think about it like, okay, well, don't build your Scrooge McDuck vault here on earth. Build your Scrooge McDuck vault in heaven. Swim around in your treasure in heaven for all of eternity. Okay, I don't know exactly how treasures in heaven and crowns in heaven work. What I do know is this. At the end of the day, in the book of Revelation, where this all ends, what you do with the treasure that you have in heaven is you gladly and joyfully lay it down at the feet of Jesus. And in that perfect eternity where where this convoluted mixture of motives is gone, there's no more greed There's no more comparison and jockeying for position. What do you care if this person has more treasure than you do? You're all laying it down at the feet of Jesus. And it's just more fuel for your worship of Him. 
That's because the point is at the end of the day, your reward from God is God himself. You get God. The other way that the gospel completely transforms our thinking about rewards is by assuring us that we already have it. We already have it. Through Jesus, we get to experience that restored and reconciled relationship with God, and we get to experience it now. It's not dangled out there as this carrot that like, maybe someday we'll catch up to, but maybe not. Though we don't get to enjoy the, the fullness of it, the perfection of it in this life, we do get to enjoy the real substance of it here and now. Our relationship with God, which is the very reward that we so deeply long for. So do we see the, the difference in that? God himself is your reward, and you already have him through Jesus. That will modify your behavior radically. It will just modify your behavior in a radically different way. Because now it will happen from the motive and heart level outward rather than trying to earn something or, or be compliant from the outside in. And I just want to close by saying this, that, that you and high men and women, we are not called, we are not invited to become moral and upstanding and decent do-gooders in the world. We are invited to be transformed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And those things are completely different. Completely different. So when we talk about these huge issues like hunger and poverty and homelessness, Jesus is going to call us to be known as a people of mercy in our neighborhoods and in this nation and in our world. But Jesus is never going to call us to do the right things for the wrong reason. And he's never going to call us to take one idol, an idol of comfort, perhaps, or complacency, or an idol of selfishness, and trade that for charitable actions motivated underneath by, by other idols of self-reliance, or self-congratulation, or seeking the praise of others, right? That is like transferring you from county jail to state maximum security prison. to cultivate this outward righteousness with these inward motives driven by ostentation or frantically trying to earn the favor of God. That's going to that's gonna lead us to become entrenched in a type of sin which in so many ways is infinitely more difficult to, to see and to therefore repent of and to be freed from than other kinds of sin. When Jesus has come, not that we might trade one idol for another, not that we might trade one prison for another, He's come truly to set us free. So may we be a freed people who pour ourselves out in merciful service of the world. But may it always come from seeing that God himself is our reward and that through the work of Jesus, we already have him. Amen. Let me pray for us. We confess to you, Jesus, that if it were just a matter of, in this life of heroic efforts on the outside, many of us would do okay. We'd at least probably do more than other people and consider it good enough. But you drive deeper to our heart level and you expose our sin and you, you unearth the, the sinful motives we have for even the good that we do. And so we confess again, we just fall short of your perfection and we desperately throw ourselves on the mercy and the grace of Jesus to rescue us from that. And I'm grateful that we get to gather around this table this morning and we get to celebrate that, Jesus, you have come into the world 
You have lived the, the, the perfect life we have not, and you have died to rescue us from our sin, be it sins of omission that we commit, the, the, the wrong that we do that we should not do, or be it these mixed motives of, for even the good that we do. So bring those things to mind. May we come seeing the cost of those at this table, but also rejoicing that that cost has been paid in full by your work.